From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. You can't just spring a plan on the world and expect it to succeed. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper works to make the most of what could be his final presidential debate. That's as Colorado Senator Michael Bennett takes the stage tonight. Then, the challenge of reducing traffic fatalities in Colorado to zero. How cities may have to transform to make it happen. Later, artist Jeff Geip's nuclear family. His father worked at Rocky Flats, got sick, and it inspired Geip to sculpt a Cold War horse dressed in a radiation suit. Now, he's making a documentary inspired by his childhood downwind from a nuclear weapons plant. And 50 years ago, a milestone in space exploration, and we're not talking about the moon landing, This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tonight, the Democratic presidential debates continue with another Coloradan on stage, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett. Last night, a Coloradan got the least airtime of the 10 candidates. But former Governor John Hickenlooper tried to make the most of those 8 minutes 54 seconds. Here's what Hickenlooper said about some of his party's more progressive ideas. This notion that you're going to take private insurance away from 180 million Americans... Or you're going to, the Green New Deal, make sure that every American is guaranteed a government job that they want. That is a disaster at at the ballot box. You might as well FedEx the election to Donald Trump. That led moments later to this exchange with one of those progressives, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. So, again, I, I think if we're going to force Americans to make these radical changes... They're not going to go along. You throw your hands up, but you right. you haven't. Imp- oh, I can do it. But you haven't implemented the plans. Us governors and mayors are the ones that we have to pick up all the pieces. Right. When suddenly the government's supposed to take over all these responsibilities, and there's no preparation, the details aren't worked. You can't just spring a plan on the world and expect it to succeed. Did moments like that provide a jolt to a campaign that, by most accounts, is lagging behind Sanders and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, among others? CPR producer Anthony Cotton has followed the Hickenlooper presidential bid from the start. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Ryan. You know, when I spoke with Governor Hickenlooper a little more than a week ago, he said he had no appetite for a confrontation with any other candidates on the debate stage. Something seems to have changed. What happened? I think you really have to give the credit to CNN for that. They basically forced the hands of everyone on stage. but They shaped their questions in a way to provoke exchanges like the one we just heard. In this case, Hickenlooper was asked if he thought Bernie Sanders was too extreme to beat President Trump. So there was really no way to wriggle out of that one. And that was the case all night. The moderators also did a really good job of picking up some of the statements made by one candidate about someone else and then throwing those words in the face of the other one for a response. After the debate, Hickenlooper told CBS News that the relative lack of airtime for him uh, made him feel a little starved for attention, his words. Uh, What was the consensus afterwards about his performance? The exchange with Sanders was great television, and it even maybe even approached that viral moment that Hickenlooper's campaign has been looking for. Uh-huh. But I'm not really sure the needle got moved very much. And there were a couple of reasons for that. In some ways, part of his thunder was stolen by the people he shared the stage with. Not Sanders and Warren, but folks like Montana Governor Steve Bullock and Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan. CNN had couched the debate as the far-left wingers, Sanders and Warren, trying to hold off a group of moderates that included Hickenlooper and those other guys. 
I've heard Hickenlooper talk a lot about his objections to the new Green Deal, the Green New Deal, rather, on climate change. But I have to admit, it was a little disconcerting to hear that same argument against it being said first by Bullock instead of Hickenlooper. And that ended up helping Warren, who scored points by saying all the moderates were essentially providing Republicans with talking points. I was reading uh, the New York Times assessment. They had a panel of writers, columnists, uh, assessing the performance of each of the candidates. And for Hickenlooper, uh, whom they rate 3.5 out of 10, you have one columnist saying, I don't understand why he's still running. Uh, to reflect what you just said there, Maureen Dowd, uh, credit for laying out his record of successfully challenging the NRA, but Steve Bullock did a better job of being a Western governor running for president who could lure Trump voters. Uh, and finally, uh, one columnist saying, time for a good man to leave this race and run instead for Senate from Colorado. What else caught your attention, Anthony? Well, I actually want to replay part of that exchange with Sanders. Hickenlooper is basing his campaign on the idea that he's someone who has accomplished things like gun control, building an economy that the other candidates have only talked about. So this is what he said again at the end of that riff with Sanders. Us governors and mayors are the ones that we have to pick up all the pieces when suddenly the government's supposed to take over all these responsibilities and there's no preparation. The details aren't worked. You can't just spring a plan on the world and expect it to succeed. I thought that was just a really passionate way of making a point that had previously sounded more like candidates speak to me. But because of the timing or the theatrics with he and Sanders waving their arms and hands in the air, it was just kind of lost. And along those same lines, Hickenlooper really tried to emphasize the point between talking and doing in some pretty stark terms during his closing argument. I'd like to ask every American to imagine that you are facing life-threatening surgery tomorrow, would you choose a doctor who had a track record of proven success, who'd actually done the work, or someone who had just talked about it? That's the question we're facing in this primary. I'm not sure that the campaign couldn't have come up with a better way to paint that particular picture, but I guess it was kind of an in-your-face way to make a point. Framing him as Dr. Hickenlooper. Uh, we've been talking about whether his hopes of winning the nomination are on life support. What, what's next for the campaign? Well, it's interesting. Hickenlooper is heading to New York. Likely some fundraising efforts will be included in that trip. The campaign had expressed hope that that task would be made easier by a good showing in the debate. And I'm guessing they would say that he did accomplish that on Tuesday, the criticisms you just read to the contrary. But the final word, of course, really belongs to the voters and maybe the people writing the checks. Well, tonight's the second night of this second round of uh, presidential debates. Uh, as I mentioned, this will feature Colorado's other candidate vying for the Democratic nomination, Senator Michael Bennett. Uh, he's in a similar space as Hickenlooper, you know, trying to break out of this 20-something pack. Uh, do you have a sense of what his strategy might be? Well, in the first round of the uh, excuse me, the first round of the debates last night, there were a lot of talk about open borders and Medicare for all. Those are two things that Bennett is opposed to. So his campaign is hoping he'll be able to make that very clear tonight in Detroit. Bennett will also try to emphasize the importance of the Democrats not only defeating Donald Trump, but maintaining its majority in the House and winning control of the Senate. Thanks so much, Anthony. You're welcome. CPR producer Anthony Cotton is covering the Colorado presidential campaigns. 
Senator Michael Bennett again is on the debate stage tonight. We should note this may be the final debate for both Hickenlooper and Bennett because the criteria to qualify for the next round are just tougher. There will be a vigil tonight in Denver to honor those killed on the roads, not just cyclists and pedestrians, but motorists and bikers, too. It's not an us-versus-them thing, just the idea that no one should die in traffic. One of the sponsors of this vigil is the advocacy group Bicycle Colorado. Spokesman Jack Todd is in our studio. Hi, Jack. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me about the significance of where this vigil is taking place in Denver for stuff. The vigil is taking place on at the intersection of Marion Street and Bayad Avenue, um, which is where bicyclist Alexis Bounds was fatally killed by a truck driver about a week ago. She uh, was the mother of two boys, nine-month-old and uh, a four-year-old. Um, and her husband told the Denver Post this was the first time she was back on her bike since Oliver had been born. Uh, why do you think this resonates? You know, I think... Um, it's important to remember that these 47 people who have died on Denver Road so far, they're all individuals and they all had stories and, and will be missed. Each of these people's deaths was a tragedy and it shouldn't just be a number that we, we look at. So she's the second of two bicyclists uh, killed this month in Denver and the fourth killed this month on the Front Range. A Bicycle Colorado says 47 people have died on Denver's roadways this year. That number includes cyclists, pedestrians, motorcyclists, drivers. And in the introduction, I use that us versus them phrase. You know, conversations about this issue often result in cyclists blaming motorists, motorists blaming cyclists. Um, of course, many drivers also bike, so these can be the same folks. But assuming it's important that all parties are responsible for safety, what do you think is the best idea for reducing bicycle accidents? You know, there's new research out of the Univ uh, University of Colorado, Denver, um, that, that says protected bike lanes make roads safer for all road users. They distinguish um, and delineate where people should be on the road, and, and that's that's huge, making roads safer for everyone. Protected bicycle lanes. I think you have a saying, paint is not protection. What do you mean by that? You know, paint is a great way to delineate something different, but it, it doesn't, as a driver, you can still drive over paint. Um, that's It's not something that physically protects people when they're on their bike, when they're walking. What does uh, protected bike infrastructure look like then? Is it those kind of flimsy signs that are placed, you know, strategically? Is it some sort of concrete barrier? Paint a picture of that for me. Yeah, uh, the ideal is separated. So with a buffered um, set of space between a bike lane and a motor vehicle lane or a tra typical traffic lane, um, bollards, the, the flimsy plastic posts you referenced, yeah. um, those are an example, but they are far from the ideal example. Okay. Where do you point to in the world that has the kind of infrastructure you wish you saw in Denver? You know, I think you can look locally. Um, places like Fort Collins are really setting the standard for Colorado. Um, bigger than that, uh, Copenhagen is is one of the best places to ride a bike in the world. Amsterdam, Utrecht in the Netherlands. Describe what it's like to ride a bike in those places. Uh, it is comfortable. Uh, you, They have clearly delineated spaces for people driving, for people biking, for people walking. Um, 
that that just designate and make clear where you should be. And, and that's a, that brings a sense of comfort and safety to everybody, eight does, or 80 years old. Eight or 80 years old. Does, does it ever feel like the bike lanes, for lack of a better term, are simply separated entirely, like, like feel like fully different routes than the roads? Almost. But, you know, in, in places that are setting the standard at, for bikes as transportation, uh-huh. uh, they are really integrated into the whole system. There's not a separate roadway for bicyclists typically. Is this also safer in a way for motorists? Does it make their job behind the wheel easier as well? It does. You know, the more bicyclists you see out there, the more people biking, um, the more comfortable motorists are going to be interacting with them. And that actually makes roads safer for everybody as well. A kind of critical mass. Kind of. Are there examples of bike infrastructure that confuse drivers? I think so. And and one of the issues that we've seen in, in Denver is that there are a lot of um, a lot of different types because the city is kind of experimenting. Yeah. I think, for instance, downtown, there's infrastructure I've just not been familiar with in other parts of the city, say along South Broadway or the kind of sharrows in my neighborhood in Congress Park. It's a different language in these different parts of the city. It is. And you know, some people biking, they really feel comfortable regardless of where they're biking. But um, to make it safe for everybody, again, for youth and for older adults, um, you really want a consistent and connected network uh, throughout the city, throughout the state. Do you think that that would simply convert people who don't ride their bike as an everyday form of transportation into bike riders? Yeah, there, there's research out there that there are kind of four types of of bike riders. There's about 3% of the population will ride no matter the, the infrastructure conditions, no matter the weather. 3%, a, 3%. Ver, a very small minority. 7% will ride um, on good infrastructure, good weather. 60% of the population are what we call interested but concerned. Uh, and they would ride if they only felt safer doing so, whether that's uh, infrastructure, whether that's weather. Um, but they that's a huge part of the population that we are trying to reach and get riding. And then you've got a final sliver who have no interest, I suppose. 30%. Yeah. We call them no way, no how. But if that's 60%, if more of them were convinced, you would get the critical mass that we talked about earlier. Uh, you'd get that kind of visibility, the safety in numbers, if you will. You might even get the public buy-in for more bicycle infrastructure, because this comes down, doesn't it, to money? It does in a lot of cases. Um, But, you know, I think infrastructure is protecting your citizens as Colorado citizens, as Denver residents. um, You know, that is hugely important. And so money, safety should outweigh financial concerns. Easy to say when you're not sitting on city council looking at the budget numbers. But uh, to what extent is the city of Denver, do you think, on the same page as your organization, Bicycle Colorado? You know, the mayor has committed to to building out 125 miles of bike lanes in the next five years, but um, they're not all funded right now. So we'd like to see that funding um, and we'd like to to see those built out. Now, bike lanes, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're protected, That's correct. Okay. So that, that doesn't... Uh, necessarily spell the future that you want. That's true. Okay. You know, at this time, uh, we don't have a connected network in Denver. Um, and so getting that would be would be a great first step. That's the even stranger thing about this experience is that you might be in a very protected place in one part of the city. And if you're trying to get to another one, uh, all of a sudden you're vulnerable again until you arrive at the next piece of infrastructure. I'd like to take this beyond Metro Denver and mm-hmm. into the high country, into rural areas. 
Uh, what are the concerns there? How are they different? You know, those roads are typically owned by the Colorado Department of Transportation. Um, Talking a lot of state roads. Yeah, sorry, state roads. Um, they the concerns are are more about shoulders um, and and wider shoulders and shoulders that are better maintained. So. A lot of the time in the shoulder, if it is wide enough, there'll be gravel, there'll be broken glass sometimes. Those are really dangerous things for bicyclists to encounter on the roadway. Is there some sense that the state is invested in improving those? Uh, you know, we I, I believe that they are, but we would like to see more of it. We'd like to see more. Uh, Jack, what will be going through your mind at tonight's vigil? The this month has been a tough one. Um, four people have, have died, on, four bicyclists have died on the roadway, and Again, those those were people. They um, and their lives. They didn't deserve to lose their lives. So I'll be I'll be thinking of them and their families, and um, knowing that these crashes are preventable in the future. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Jack Todd is communications and policy director for Bicycle Colorado. Tonight's candlelight vigil is at nine thirty at Marion and Bayard in Denver, where a bicyclist was killed earlier this month. A trick question now. 50 years ago, there was an important milestone in space. What was it? Maybe you answered the moon landing. That's true, of course. But something else happened that year much farther away. As Mars rotated in view of the approaching Mariner 6, scientists saw the familiar features observed so often from Earth. And for the first time, they saw the southern polar cap of Mars as jagged and uneven. Some fuzzy archive tape, but on July 21st, 1969, Mariner 6 came within 2,100 miles of the Martian surface. That may not sound all that close, but remember, Mars and Earth are never less than 34 million miles from each other. For a look at Martian exploration then and now, planetary scientist Nick Schneider of CU Boulder joins us. He's on the MAVEN team, which is monitoring Mars even as we speak. Nick, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that Neil Armstrong walks on the moon July 20th, 1969, and then less than a week later, Mariner 6 blows a kiss at Mars, followed by its companion spacecraft Mariner 7. How big a deal were these brushes with the red planet? Oh, it was uh, it was enormous. And uh, put yourself back in that time to realize that up until these first Mariner encounters with uh, the planets, uh, planets were nothing more than points of light in the sky. And we didn't know if we were going to encounter Mars and find uh, uh, water or rocks or geological features. We just didn't know. Um, and so to get up close with scientific instrumentation was incredible. Did we think there were Martians still at that point? Like, did we think that Mars could support life, or did we know more about it? So that opinion had sort of faded away, but I recently saw the Air Force map of Mars that was provided for planning purposes uh, uh, for the Mariner missions, and it had all those um, amazing lines that looked like canals that had inspired that idea previously. So uh, th- uh, that, was the, that was the backdrop of these encounters. Uh, but of course, what those Mariner spacecraft saw were uh, was a dry landscape, uh, craters, and uh, nothing like those earlier science fiction views. Okay, so people interpreted these features as canals. Uh, they might have thought they were even man or alien made. What were the lines actually? 
Uh, it turns out that uh, the lines were largely uh, tricks of the eye and our natural tendency to see patterns. Oh. But there were real amazing patterns uh, um, that we now know to be moving dust, but at one point uh, were hypothesized as changing vegetation. Um, of course, the idea that Mars is an important place to uh, search for life is still very much important. What did these spacecraft look like, Mariners 6 and 7? Uh, well, they uh, they look a lot like the Apollo spacecraft that you've seen, uh, and this really was a very new time where people had to invent this form of space travel and how do we provide power and how do we communicate and uh, what scientific instruments do we put on board? Uh, but uh, you know, it all it all made sense. It all worked. What was the biggest revelation, do you think, 50 years ago about Mars? You've talked about some of what we were aware of, but I I, I know that there were epiphanies about its atmosphere. Uh, Yes, and one of them that's very poignant for me was that uh, I think it was pretty much 50 years ago today that the information came back that Mars was surrounded by a huge cloud of hydrogen, which we now recognize as the telltale sign of water molecules being broken up. Uh, and this is still the same trail that the MAVEN mission is following today. Uh, we think that Mars was once warm and wet, and the latest results from MAVEN suggest uh, that uh, water and a lot of the early atmosphere um, actually uh, drifted away into space. And the Mariner 6 and 7 spacecraft were the first ones to have evidence of that. So might Mars have had rivers and lakes and oceans? Uh, Absolutely. The uh, images that came from follow-on spacecraft uh, and even the spacecraft orbiting right now show unmistakable signatures of water having flowed, maybe even rain having fallen, and possible shorelines of uh, lakes and maybe an ocean. So there's little doubt that water was abundant on the surface, um, and it must have been warmer and wetter. Was there an extreme version of climate change then on Mars? Is this something that that the Earth might look forward? I I don't know about looking forward to it, but you know what I mean. (laughs) So one of the great things that has come out of planetary exploration is an appreciation of the processes that control all planets. And so you're you're very right to be uh, wondering uh, if uh, things that happen to one planet might happen to another. But we've learned from the, the kaleidoscope of opportunities out in our solar system uh, that, that uh, certain things really matter for the behavior of the planet. Um, planetary size matters. It controls gravity and even the presence of a magnetic field. And we now have a strong indication that Mars being a smaller world than Earth with weak gravity and no magnetic field anymore, um, those are the circumstances that allowed its atmosphere to slip away. Okay, and that makes this pretty specific to Mars. What are we learning from MAVEN 50 years later? What what are your aha moments? Oh, it's been uh, really remarkable, the variety of results coming back from the MAVEN mission. This mystery of where did the atmosphere go and where must all the water have gone was really the purpose that MAVEN was sent there. And the idea that the atmosphere could escape to space was initially seen uh, as, as a ridiculous idea. And, and yet it was sort of the only alternative after others had been ruled out. A lot of missions had gone to Mars looking for other ways to hide carbon dioxide, the main atmospheric ingredient, which is a greenhouse gas, um, and even uh, where might the water have gone, and looking uh, 
in the surface, in the rocks. Uh, CO2 actually makes limestone, and so many missions searched for limestone, didn't find it, and mm. that left the possibility that uh, the atmosphere must be going upwards, uh, escaping, and every instrument on MAVEN has uh, supported that conclusion, that the um, uh, many, many processes which we've studied in detail uh, have caused that atmosphere to leak away to space. Did you always want to be involved in space exploration? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, when I was uh, uh, 12, that was the time of the first Apollo landing. And I was so awestruck, um, as were many, many people of my generation, that I just wanted to be involved in any way. And my family reminds me that I said uh, it would be enough to be a janitor for NASA. Um, and I, I like to joke that since the university has me empty my own trash, my, my dream has come true. But there's a sincere... <laughs> There's a sincere point in there as well, which was I just wanted to be involved in any way. And, and it's as true today as it was then. Um, and so uh, uh, someone asked me, what would 12-year-old what would uh, Nick say to you today? And I, th I think 12-year-old um, Nick would probably say, uh, wow, look what you get to do. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen? Think of all the opportunities that you were given. Think of everybody that uh, helped you along the way, that taught you and gave you opportunities. And I think 12-year-old I think Nick would say, boy, you owe big time. Um, and, and that's how I feel. And it's part of why uh, I'm at the university, why I do work to, uh, to help with the next generation. I think 12-year-old uh, Nick might think you were pretty cool, too. Um, he, he, I understand that you, Very think, lucky. you think that Mars is possibly going to be at, get, getting crowded in the next few years. What do you mean by that? Oh, it's often said that um, Mars is the only planet uh, known to be inhabited only by robots. Um, and uh, that's going to be true for a little while longer. And I think we're going to get about four more. It's hard to keep count. Uh, with the next um, alignment of the planets next summer, there are going to be a bunch of launches from uh, NASA, from the European Space Agency. I believe China will launch a mission. And even United Arab Emirates will launch a mission that they've done in partnership with LASP. And the question remains whether we will eventually put people on Mars. Uh, it's certainly a goal. Uh, yeah, it's been a frustration of my career because uh, putting people on Mars has been 20 years in the future ever since Apollo. Okay. Um, and I don't, think, I, I don't think the problem is technological. I think it's a question of, of national priorities. Uh, when we landed on the moon and sent robots to the other side of the solar system 50 years ago, uh, NASA had 5% of the federal budget, and now it has one half of 1%. And I'd, I'd think that this nation uh, could look at its values, look at the return of our exploration of the solar system and the universe, and, um, and think about whether that's, that's the right number. Nick, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Nick Schneider is a planetary scientist at LASP, the Lab for Atmospheric and Space Physics. He's also a CU Boulder professor. At LASP now, you can see a full-scale model of NASA's Mariner 6 and 7 spacecraft. When he was growing up, artist Jeff Geip wasn't entirely sure what his dad did for a living. His workplace was shrouded in secrecy. 
Years later, Guype went on to make a piece of art dedicated to workers like his father. Cold War Horse sits near the site of what used to be the Rocky Flats Nuclear Weapons Facility. It's now a wildlife refuge that critics fear is still contaminated. Jeff Guype today is finishing up a documentary called Half-Life of Memory. And Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. The first time I saw your sculpture in Arvada, it knocked the wind out of me. Before we talk about your father, will you describe the horse and what you were trying to say with it? Yeah, so um, I guess my concern about the site. um, So I lived in Arvada, Colorado, grew up just downwind of Rocky Flats. And in 2009, I moved away from the, the area, came out to New York and uh, when I went back, I was just astonished that the site had sort of been swept from the public consciousness. And uh, all the signs had been removed, the buildings had been removed. And so I really wanted to acknowledge what happened there, um, you know, acknowledge the workers and the fact that this was the center of the nuclear weapons complex. And uh, it really was uh, kind of frustrating to me that there was no signage out there at the site. So I had uh, proposed a, a sort of large-scale monument and um, was never able to find funding for that. And then a couple of years later, uh, there's these massive housing developments that were going up all around Rocky Flats. And so I knew that, uh, to me personally, I felt like something needed to be there as a symbol to let people know the history of the site. And describe so the then, symbol that you came up with. Um, so yeah, so it's a uh, a little larger than life size horse uh, wearing a hazmat suit and uh, has a gas mask and boots, and uh, it stands currently stands on Highway seventy two just south of Rocky Flats. So, I mean, it was it was quite um, quite a project to put together, and then even more so to find a place to display it. Um, I don't think. Unfortunately, many people around there want to acknowledge uh, what happened there. There's such a smart play on words with the name of this piece of art. Uh, Of course, we think of war horses as a big concept, but then to think of a Cold War horse also reflects on the fact that the workers at Rocky Flats were themselves uh, contributing to the war effort by making these nuclear triggers, that they were soldiers of a different stripe. What was your perception of Rocky Flats when you were a child? You know, I I think I was so close to it that I wasn't able to actually question uh, what was happening. You know, my father worked at the site. Uh, Many other families in my neighborhood had um, people that worked out at Rocky Flats. So it was so common uh, where I grew up that it it was not unusual. So it really took leaving the site to understand, like, Wow, this is this is really important. What happened here? And I also didn't know, you know, the seventy thousand triggers that you mentioned. The trigger is actually a euphemism. So yeah. they actually built seventy thousand atomic bombs um, at Rocky Flats that then w- would be put into thermonuclear weapons to set those off for an even larger explosion. Um, and you know, even today, that's that's not really acknowledged. Uh, what they were doing. And I think, you know, their contribution is huge um, in trying to defend this country and um, 
there was a lot of good things that happened at Rocky Flats, and then there was also a lot of bad things that happened there. And uh, in fact, there was I think that there was a, a raid at one point uh, of one f- federal agency by another uh, because conditions had deteriorated so much. And and many former workers at the plant have since developed health problems after being exposed to plutonium and beryllium. Uh, did your dad end up with any problems after working there? Yeah, he he suffers from health issues. Um, he has not had cancer, and he feels that he's very lucky to not have had cancer yet. Um, he's had Parkinson's, and while he was working at the site, had a major heart attack. Um, but neurological diseases are not uncommon uh, for workers out there. We think of cancer as being like the illness that people would get from radiation. But there were thousands of toxic chemicals out there that they were messing with every day. Um, and some of them radioactive and some of them just toxic. And so a lot of the people he worked with have passed, unfortunately. What, what exactly did he do? So he was a, he was a <laughs> technically a maintenance supervisor, which uh, sounds sort of benign. Uh, but he was in and out of all of the hot buildings. And uh, whenever any any work needed to be done, such as like a glove box that got a hole in the glove, a glove box is where they would handle the plutonium uh, within this sheltered space because it was too dangerous to handle. And it also spontaneously combusts if it if air um, comes in contact with it. Wow. So, so they would... Uh, use lead line gloves within these steel boxes to handle the plutonium. And very often, uh, you know, the rubber would wear out or they would get holes in them. And, you know, this is one way that the workers were exposed to toxins. Um, and so he he did a lot of stuff um, around that whole site. He was one of, I think there was only three different groups of people that had access to the whole site. And that was the upper management security, and maintenance. So he kind of um, got to see the whole operation. Uh, As we said, you're making a documentary about Rocky Flats. The Atomic Energy Commission continues to say that plutonium particles not only are no hazard to communities near the Rocky Flats plant, but certainly are no hazard here in Denver, 16 miles away. Independent scientists strongly feel that the particles not only can get here, but indeed can get anywhere wherever the wind blows. I'll just note the timing of the film. You know, now this area is a refuge. Your film will come out. It will talk about this history. Are are you trying to instill a wariness or a fear even in people about this site, which health officials have declared safe enough to open as a refuge? Uh, No, not fear at all. Um, I guess I've been accused of that with the Cold War horse as well. But I think acknowledging history is very important, especially when we move forward. Um, Plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years. So what that means is that in 24,000 years, uh, the radioactivity out there will be half as much. It will be cut in half. So we're really looking at thousands of generations of potential danger out there. And and, um, to call it fear or fear-mongering, which is what a lot of my friends and colleagues have been called, is really a disgrace because this site has been, like I said, swept from the consciousness of of the community. And if we don't acknowledge these things that that did happen there, and I I still don't think we've gotten the full truth on what happened there, um, you know, that, that really leaves, especially future generations, it's great that you're covering this and there's some media on it now, but what happens in five years when nobody's paying attention anymore? 
And, um, you know, the, the only real sign out to let people know the history of the site is the Cold War horse right now. Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has refused to put up signage. And uh, Representative Wes McKinley, who was the grand jury foreman back in 1989 to 1992, one of his sayings is that, you know, even on a jar of honey, will put a warning that we should not feed this to infants under one year of age because of uh, potential health implications. And yet, you know, here's the most toxic chemical known to man, and we're not willing to put a label on it to say, hey, maybe you should, uh, you know, decide for yourself whether you should go out here or not. People going out there have no clue. The EPA and state public health officials maintain, as I said, the area is safe. Uh, the state told us last year we were not able to find any elevated cancer rates that could reasonably be related to exposure from rocky flats. But I want to say they're currently retesting soil at the refuge for plutonium and uranium. That's a story that will continue to follow. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, Jeff, a, a story we've told for years. I just want to make that clear. And I want to thank you for joining us. That's artist Jeff Geip. He grew up downwind from the Rocky Flats Nuclear Weapons Plant. He's also the sculptor of Cold War Horse in Arvada. Another twist in the Rocky Flats saga, 60 file boxes from a criminal investigation into the facility have gone missing. That investigation ended 27 years ago with charges for environmental violations. Since then, the documents haven't been opened to the public, but activists are trying to change that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Legal marijuana is green. Factually, it just is green. Well, as an industry, it's actually not very green at all. On the latest episode of the new podcast from CPR called On Something, we take a look at one guy in Gypsum, Colorado, who is trying his darndest to grow weed with the smallest carbon footprint possible. Zero carbon footprint, in fact. Listen to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, we expect to learn that the federal government has approved Colorado's reinsurance plan. Now, if that sounds less than thrilling, try this. The Polis administration says it could mean health insurance premiums drop 18 percent on average for Coloradans who buy their own policies. Colorado would become the eighth state to launch a reinsurance program. So how does it work? Let's listen back to a primer with economist Sarah Collins of the Commonwealth Fund, which supports independent research on health care. So reinsurance pays insurers for part of their costs when they have, in the case of health care, very sick patients. Um, because it reduces some of their risk of high costs, insurers have more confidence that they won't suffer big losses in marketplaces um, like Colorado Connect. Um, this means that they're more likely to stay in the market and, and to set their premiums lower than they might otherwise. The uh, Affordable Care Act had a temporary federal reinsurance program in its first three years to encourage insurers to participate in the marketplaces. And this was at a time when insurers were really worried that a lot of people with health problems might enroll and they'd suffer losses. Um, Because of that reinsurance program, that federal program, premiums were as much as 14% lower than they might otherwise have been. Hmm. Unfortunately, um, the reinsurance Um, program in the Affordable Care Act phased out, and Congress has not renewed it, even though there really is bipartisan support in Congress for doing some kind of reinsurance program. And so you're seeing states get on this bandwagon. 
Uh, so just to tease reinsurance out a bit more, uh, this focuses on the healthcare consumers who are the most expensive. Is it sort of redistributing that risk? Put a finer point on it for us. So it's just protecting insurers from really high costs. So insurers might have um, might um, set their premiums at a certain level, um, and but it, but some of their patients, some of their enrollees might have really catastrophic healthcare costs, which shoot their claims costs way up. Uh-huh. And so reinsurance comes in and and offsets some of those costs for them. And presumably then brings all of our premiums down collectively. That's exactly right. Okay. We spoke with Alaska's insurance director. That's Lori Wing Heyer. Uh, Hers was the first state to establish its own reinsurance program. Our rates since 2018, the first two years of the program, we have seen a decrease in our individual market premiums of close to 30%. We most definitely attribute it to the reinsurance program. We think it has helped stabilize the market and lower premiums, making it more accessible for those that are not eligible for the premium tax credits offered by the federal government. That means that even people who don't get subsidies on the exchange apparently saved money. She also tells us Alaska started the program because it was down to just one health insurer in the whole state. That's going to be familiar to folks in rural Colorado. Uh, do, Do you have this sense uh, that this can stabilize the market as well and keep insurers offering uh, plans in places. Absolutely. And and we know we know that because seven states are running reinsurance programs now. They've gotten approval um, from the federal government to establish these programs like like Alaska. And these the what they've seen like Alaska, um, a decline in premiums um, in every state. Um, and they've also seen a stabilization in terms of the participation of their insurers. So it's held insurers in the market. Can you address the huh factor here? In other words, if this has a proven track record in the states where it's working, why wouldn't Congress just jump on it for the country? And why would it only be seven states and not 50? Well, that's a great question. And we know, like I said, that there's bipartisan support for reinsurance um, in, in Congress. Um, it would help help. I mean, it's great that seven states have done this so far, but it means that a lot of other states don't have these reinsurance programs. It's uh, there is a lot of effort involved in getting them up and running. Um, you have to get approval um, from the federal government to do it if you want to get some of the savings um, that Alaska got, for example. So some some of the savings you get from um, lower premiums, it means lower, subsidies, and the federal government gives those savings back to states to offset some of their costs. But it's complicated to get um, to get this in place. Um, we There are about five to six other states that are looking at this, too, right now. Um, but there is, there is some effort involved in getting it off the ground. That is economist Sarah Collins, a vice president with the Commonwealth Fund, which supports independent research on health care. We spoke in March as the state legislature was crafting a reinsurance program. Again, we expect to learn today that the federal government has approved the state's plan. Thousands of people ride RTD trains and buses every day to get to work to meet friends. A small percentage use free or discounted passes. A new program means more people can ride for a lower price, but RTD has hit a few bumps along the way. 
My colleague Mike Lamp talks with CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner about this new affordable ride program. Here's how it works. Well, anyone ages 20 to 64 who makes under a certain amount, anywhere from $23,000 for one person up to $47,000 for a household of four, they can now sign up directly with RTD for this discount. There's an online form that RTD says takes maybe half an hour to complete, and then you get a card in the mail in a few weeks. And that card lets you buy bus and train tickets for this lower cost. That's right, 40% off. And that's a pretty big deal. RTD expects somewhere around 80,000 people will sign up for the discount in the next few years. And that's way more than can get a discount or a free ride today. Well, how did people ride uh, before who couldn't afford a ticket? For a long time, RTD has sold a limited number of fares directly to nonprofits. These are places like county human service departments, school districts, or homeless shelters, and those organizations give them away to their clients. RTD's Michael Washington says that system could be kind of hard to navigate, or nonprofits could run out of fares to give out, and this new program is meant to fix that. This provides people with sustainable benefit. This is a much larger scale in that they're not depending on a nonprofit anymore. Will nonprofits still be able to get those discounted passes? Yes, kind of. To balance the budget, RTD cut the discount nonprofits get from 50% down to 40%. And Deb Butte with the Denver Rescue Mission says that means they won't be able to buy as many fares from RTD. Our fiscal budget for the next year, we've budgeted a certain amount of money, and so it will just not allow us to help as many people. But people will also be able to purchase the passes on their own without going through a group, right? Right. So what's the the big issue here? Well, for people who have some means, the new discount is going to be a good thing. But homeless shelters give their passes to people who have nothing or next to nothing and just can't afford to pay even a discounted fare. This could affect people like Lisa Rivera, who's been homeless on and off for 25 years. I met her at the St. Francis Day Shelter in downtown Denver. And St. Francis gives her bus passes to get to her medical appointments. It'd just be hard to get around. I would have to walk to my appointments, and it'll take me like two or three hours to get there because I have asthma. What are these nonprofits doing about it? Well, they're trying to raise more money from donors to cover the difference. Tom Lures with the St. Francis Center says he's glad more people can benefit now. But he's worried about how this might impact the people he serves. I think what this program is basically doing is supporting a wider community of people in need off the backs of the people who are most desperate and most in need in our community. But RTD says it's working with nonprofits to address their concerns. And where does that leave people like uh, Lisa Rivera, who we just heard from? Well, some nonprofits I talked with say they're going to shift from giving people passes to helping them sign up for the discount. But people like Rivera will just have to hope they can keep getting free passes from nonprofits. So looking forward, more people are going to have access to cheap passes. But those who really need them the most might have a harder time getting them. Okay, thanks a lot. You're welcome. CPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner speaking with my colleague Mike Lamp about a new affordable pass program which RTD launched Monday. Finally today, Denver's music scene may be best known for its rock and hip-hop groups, but fans here are no stranger to country western. That genre is enjoying something of a comeback in Colorado thanks in part to acts like Extra Gold. The band was formed a couple of years ago by guitarist and vocalist Evan Holm. He wanted to host a monthly country music showcase at a Denver venue, Syntax Physic Opera. The sound Extra Gold creates is, and these are their words, a cocktail that's equal parts golden era country revival, folk, and rock and roll. 
Extra Gold released their debut album High and Lonesome late last year, and recently they transformed our performance studio into a honky-tonk with a boot-stomping set that included the song When the Matches Meet the Wood. Michigan's where I got my start Where they frozen under snow and stole my heart Seven thousand feet above the seas Where it all came back to me I was 18 But only Mile High Country, courtesy of Extra Gold, with When the Matches Meet the Wood, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. You can catch one of the band's two-step-in beer-slinging dance parties when they perform next month at the Walnut Room in Denver. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. All I need is a woman for...